And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And again, you can always follow um, more of my more frequent thoughts and more importantly, find links to the stories or facts or other ways to fact check things that I'm talking about on the program on my Twitter feed. Uh, and that's at Jake Jake NY. At Jake Jake NY is my Twitter feed. And you know, I wanted to talk this week about something that is connected not only to the ongoing coronavirus COVID-19 issue, not only to our general political state, both here in the United States and Israel and much of the Western, or the whole world, really. But it's something that's connected to, I think, just our daily lives and, and, the, and the trend our lives and, and culture have been going in, especially in the United States over the last 20 to 30 years, which concerns me. And that is, if I had to give it one title, that is what I would call the decimation or the severe weakening of crowd-based activities in America. Now, I'll start off with a personal anecdote to kind of get you in the right mode for what I'm talking about here, because I don't want to go right straight to the headlines here and the news of the day. And if you say something about crowds in America right now or anywhere in the world, you're automatically thinking coronavirus, you're thinking COVID stuff, you're thinking people who are breaking rules by going to you know funerals or weddings. I, I, that's part of what I want to discuss, but I didn't want to start there. I wanted to talk a little bit more on a base level, a little bit more on a, an emotional level here. And I'll talk, I'll talk, let's begin with the, with the true anecdote, a true story about my life. Now, many of you listening here on Novak Now right now uh, know that I am not, for all intents and purposes, a native New Yorker. Now, I've lived, if you just in aggregate number of years, if you're, if you're playing the math game, yes, I have lived most of my life in New York in fits and starts. I have not lived here uh, consistently for all the years that I've lived here. I had a break in the middle. But most of the years of my life, yes, I have lived in the general New York area, but I think as many people would agree that if you grow up and spend your formative years outside of New York, there's something that's going to be a little bit different about you. You won't really be 100% a New Yorker, and I don't say that to exclude myself or to exclude anyone. Obviously, there are people who come here even later as adults who really, in all in their whole body and soul become New Yorkers. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that I think there are a lot of people, if you've spent your formative years outside of this area, like I did, um, you'll be a little bit different. And by the way, I embrace that. I, I love New York and I love a lot of things about it. And I love a lot of things about the other parts of the country where I've lived. And I'm generally so much of an optimist that I like to think about all that stuff. I don't have a grass is greener on the other side mentality all the time, but there are times when I think about other parts of the country that I liked and, and things like that. But I came to New York around a little bit before high school time. So I had already been, you know, growing up in, in other parts of the country, very different from New York. But I was already becoming, uh, at that time of my life, um, a, a sports fan. And before we moved to New York, I had mostly been living in what you would call minor league towns, cities that did not have uh, major league teams at, at the highest professional level. In other words, didn't have a major league baseball team in most of the towns that I had lived in, didn't have an NFL football team, didn't have an NHL hockey team, and did not have an NBA basketball team. Again, for the most part. So when we came to New York uh, around, again, I was, in I was a junior high, so I wasn't quite in high school yet. I really wanted to go to a professional sporting event. 
And of course, uh, as I got to school in, in in the New York area, I was surrounded by kids who were big fans of the teams around here. So that desire only got greater. And my father, who is not a sports fan and does not follow sports, um, agreed to take me. And, and it's funny, it skipped a generation in my family. His father, and I think it's one of the reasons why he's not such a sports fan. My father's father was a huge sports fan, bigger than I am. Uh, in Chicago, uh, where he lived his whole life, he back in the fifties and sixties when people, in fact, teams, a lot of teams in the fifties and sixties, believe it or not, did not have, for example, season tickets. Season tickets is kind of a newer idea in sports, but somehow he, if there if there were teams that had season tickets in Chicago at the time, one or two, he did it. <laughs> he had them. Uh, there was a time in Chicago where they had two football teams. Many of you may know that today's Arizona Cardinals came to Arizona from St. Louis, but before St. Louis, they were in Chicago for many years. My grandfather was a fan of the Bears and the Cardinals. <laughs> he was a fan of the Cubs, uh, certainly went to a lot of White Sox games, uh, liked basketball as well. Uh, Chicago has not has not had a long history with, with professional basketball teams consistently. The Bulls are a team that I think began in the, in the 60s, believe it or not. But they had other teams that were there. Uh, and, of course, he, he liked hockey, too. So he was a huge, huge fan. I think it turned my dad off because of the intense way that his father was into sports. So my father's not a sports fan. But he agreed to take me. He was very good during my, <laughs> during my years as, uh, before I could drive or take the subway by myself or the Long Island River by myself. And he would take me to various uh, Mets or Rangers or Islanders or, uh, you know, we, I don't know if we ever got to an NFL game together, but he took me to games, uh, Knicks games, things like that. And so this is just a few, maybe just a month and a half or two months into, uh, living in New York in the, for the first time, uh, my dad took me to a New York Rangers game. Uh, obviously remember this very, very well. This is the fall of 1981, and we go to a New York Rangers game at Madison Square Garden. We did not take the Long Island Rubber, which would have been a smart move. Uh, we drove in, um, completely naive as to how to go to these games. We didn't know that you really needed to have tickets beforehand. The Rangers, even then, uh, were, were a tough ticket. But it was kind of a rainy night, and we got out of our car. We got a good parking spot near the garden, and some guy just came over to us and, and sold us tickets, and I think they were like a face value. I mean, we got really lucky. And we got into the game, and of course, I'm watching the game for the game. I'm watching the, the hockey game as, as a sports fan, and my dad is more paying attention to the event itself, the, 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 the arena, um, the attitude of the crowd, what's going on in, in the stands and in the seats, and, and the whole thing. And I was surprised uh, about a week or two later when my father, who um, was a pulpit rabbi at the time, my father was a pulpit rabbi uh, in the conservative movement. He was very traditional for the conservative movement, which is one of the reasons why he ended up leaving the conservative movement. And anyway, he became a full-time academic and left the pulpit anyway. But I was very surprised a couple of weeks later in in his drusha for the week, and I don't remember, unfortunately, what Torah portion he was connecting this to or what rabbinic text he was connecting this to. But he, I was very surprised a couple of weeks later when he dedicated the experience of taking me to that hockey game. Uh, to, he dedicated part of that sermon to talking about that. And what I do remember about that very well, and again, this is almost 40 years ago, that he, that he delivered the sermon, but I remember it well. I remember him talking about how he was really, really impressed with the fact that here we were living in this in New York City, which is supposed to be very impersonal 
and cold and uh, people not really looking at each other in the eye. Remember, this is 1981, so crime was a little bit higher back then, um, and in some cases a lot higher, depending on the neighborhood we're talking about. And, you know, more of an impersonal place, a place where people were, were not interconnected. And then he, we get into Madison Square Garden. The place is packed with about, you know, 18, 19, 20,000 people who are really acting as one. And there's a camaraderie in that arena. And there were people there who saw that I didn't understand some of the intricacies of the game and they were explaining it to me. There were people who were very casually talking to each other and us throughout the game. Um, my dad was talking about how it was clear there was a good mix of Jews and non-Jews in the arena. Uh, and there was just that feeling for that two hours or so, I guess it takes about two hours and change to, to go through a hockey game. Um, that was a real communal experience. I mean, people were really tightly knit for that experience. You know, I, I guess it helped that the Rangers that night were playing the St. Louis Blues and not, for example, the Islanders or, or, or another team that was geographically closer by. Maybe my father would have seen, in that case, uh, fans fighting with each other because there would have been some of the visiting team's fans there. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were probably fewer than 100 St. Louis Blues fans in, in the stands that night, if any, if that. Uh, so it really felt like a completely unified group of 20,000 people. And my father was compelled to really talk about this, even though he was not a sports fan and hadn't gone to a lot of sporting events. He, he did get to go to some events with his father as a child, but he was very young and wasn't paying attention. And, and he talked about that. And that story, not only because it was a personal story with that I share with my dad, and, and not only because he gave a sermon about it, but the wisdom of some of his observations has really been at the forefront of my mind Lately, uh, I would say it's been getting closer to the forefront of my mind throughout the COVID lockdowns, and not just because sporting events have been shut down for fans in New York. Um, we understand now that about 10% of the stands are going to be allowed to be filled in the coming weeks, apparently. Um, and even in the states where they are much more uh, forgiving and, and permitting when it comes to crowd sizes, it's still, you know, about a third at, at the most. I think that at some of the NFL games towards the end of the season, some of those outdoor stadiums allowed 30% or 33% capacity. I think there were maybe no more than 25,000 people, for example, at the Super Bowl last week. So even then, you know, there, we're, we're missing something there because whereas 25,000 people is certainly a large crowd by any means, spread out over a stadium of 80,000 seats, it, it, it takes away quite a bit of, of that communal feeling. So I've been thinking about that story a lot because, you know, there's definitely, I, I believe there's definitely a, a human need in our DNA, in, for those of you who, who want to refer to it as our, as our neshama, as our soul, I think that there is a definite need for a, a decent amount of time, a decent amount of experiences in crowds. And they don't have to be tens of thousands of people large. But I think that there is a need for us to... to not only feel that we're in a community or, or, or you know, know on paper that we're living in a community. Let's say we're living in a religious neighborhood with an Arab and, and all those kinds of things that keep us together at times. And you know it in your heart and you know it in your mind. But I think that there's a need to actually see it and be in that crowd sometimes, to be in the crowded synagogue, to be in the crowded sports arena, to be in, um, in some, sometimes even a crowded subway train, as long as you, have, you, know, you can breathe. 
And I think that there's a need for that. It's not something that we need all the time. And then there may be some people who are listening to this who are claustrophobic or really get scared when they're in a confined space. And I'll, I understand that. I'm not talking about needing to be uh, squished <laughs> or needing to be feeling that you have no elbow room. I'm talking about needing to be in a place where you're with a lot of other people. I think that most of us actually have that need from time to time. It may be more frequent for some people than others. But I think that that is, some, that is something real. And I think that is something that plays a, a big role in, in, in improving. I think it's mostly a good thing. And I think that there are people who have taken the wrong knee-jerk reaction to the word crowds. Or the, and, and, and very often conflate the word crowd or conflate the word um, gather, large gathering with the word mob. And I think we see that a lot these days, and it's unfortunate. We had, for example, this, you know, we've had the, the 2020 and, and, and going into early 2021, we had controversies on the left and right connected to so-called crowds and mobs over the spring and summer and going, and, and really, in some ways, in some parts of the country, it hasn't ended. We've had so-called crowds of protesters, violent protesters and rioters. Again, I say so-called because we know that even in the worst rioting that we saw, whether it was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, whether it's been in Portland or Seattle, there have been times when there have been a lot of people out on the streets, there have been times when there have been big, big marches. But it's pretty clear that the violence that we've seen the burning down the buildings, the breaking of windows and things like that have been done by individuals. We haven't seen 100 people throw rocks at the same time and 100 people torch buildings at the same time. These are like small groups of people who are what I would call you know, agent provocateurs, people who are taking advantage of a large crowd that is not necessarily there to do anything bad, but they're taking advantage of their cause. They're taking advantage of the cover that they can, you know, the physical cover. They can sort of cover themselves and conceal themselves within a crowd to do nefarious things. And I think the same thing is true of the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th. I mean, there were thousands of people who went to that thing. How many exactly burst into the Capitol? And then how many on top of that actually did violence? I mean, I think that we're talking about possibly single-digit numbers when we, talk to act, when we talk about actual physical violence at the Capitol. I'm not saying that to excuse the people who did that. But I think the point is, it's not a mob that caused that. It may have been a mob that these people took advantage of. Uh, not a mob. It, it's not a, it's, it, it may have taken advantage of a crowd to hide among their numbers. But that doesn't mean that crowds in general are mobs. They are not one and the same. And it's very important to remember that. So let's talk about that on a smaller level just for a second, even before we get to the size of something like a hockey crowd or a major protest. Um, I cannot tell you how much I think the Jewish community at all levels, even in the Orthodox synagogues, many of whom have, have found a way to have some kind of regular services, but I, I think that the closing down of synagogue life, even for Jews who are a little bit less religious, let's say, you know, a, a conservative Jewish person who goes to synagogue, let's say, once a month, or a reformed Jewish person who, who goes maybe five or six times a year, but now we've gotten to the point now where that year is up now on lockdown. You know, we've, we've gone through that year, and so that means that's five or six times they haven't gone. Uh, for, again, obviously there are conservative Jews who not only go every week to, to, to Shul, but go multiple times a week. So I'm not trying to say conservative equals going less, but I'm just using these as random examples. Uh, let's say there's a conservative Jew who goes every Shabbat usually, and that's now 52, 53 times that they have missed out on being sitting with his or her community in, in a larger setting. And I think this has taken 
tremendous air out of the tires of the Jewish community. And we're doing this. So the idea of doing this is to save lives and to stop the spread of a potentially, for some people, a deadly disease. But we've really got to remember what we've lost here. Now, I'm not advocating opening up synagogues, especially in places where there are a lot of people who are more susceptible to the disease than others. I'm not saying that. I think this has to be done on a case-by-case basis and everything else like that. What I am saying here is very similar to an argument I make about the legalization of drugs. I may not be for or against that idea. We just have to make sure that we're discussing all the pros and cons, the, the important pros and cons. Obviously, we can't list every pro and con. But the important and the most, in, the most damaging and or, or helpful pros and cons when we do something. And I think that there's been tremendous damage in the shutting down of the synagogues and churches as well. And I can't tell you how disappointing it was several months ago, I, I guess it was maybe even not more than three or four months ago, when the U.S. Supreme Court, with the deciding decision vote cast by Chief Justice John Roberts, basically decided for the state of, allowed the state of Nevada to open the casinos and, and close the churches and synagogues. And to me, this was really indicative of our problem here in America. Because, by the way, you can have a large crowd at a casino sometimes. Um, not that I have been in a, personally, I've seen it on video. I know, but I am aware that you can have a large crowded casino at times. But from what I have seen in my days of just observing casinos in America, you know, this is not like the 1960s or the 70s when the only casinos were in fabulous Las Vegas and people wearing tuxedos and things like that. We have a situation now where we have gambling, licensed state, state, statewide licensed gambling almost everywhere in America. And for a lot of places in America, it's not as glamorous as Las Vegas, right? Or even Atlantic City. And there have been times when, I, 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 I don't gamble, but there have been times when I've seen up close what that looks like. And it's not a crowd communal experience from what I've seen. It's, it's people alone sitting at a slot machine with a 30-ounce or 20-ounce cup full of quarters or silver dollars. It's people, a lot of smoking. It's a lot of all kinds of other stuff like that. It's not really a communal experience for most people. I, I realize that at times it is, especially if you're sitting at a poker table or maybe at a blackjack table with a lot of people together, it can be a communal thing. But for the most part, I think that it, in a lot of places it is not. And so for the court to decide the casinos could open, but the churches couldn't was really a blow to, again, my argument that as human beings, we need to have more communal experiences. And of course, for most of you listening now, I think you'll understand that from a point of view of going to synagogue or going to church and, and, and praying as a group. And this has got a lot, there are a lot of examples in Jewish law and tradition about the importance of having, for lack of a better word, a crowd to pray with. We know that, for example, (laughs) you have to have 10 men, and if you're from one of the more uh, liberal branches of Judaism, just 10 adults to to have a real full, fully uh, completed uh, synagogue service or service of any kind. You, You need a minion. Um... And without it, we're, we're bereft as Jews of things. I, I feel so sorry, for example, for people who are saying Kaddish, the memorial prayer for a loved one, whether it's for an entire 11 months for, you know, for the initial mourning period or what we call yard site, which is the, the anniversary of, of a death when you do it for that day. And of course, you, you really can't say Kaddish. I mean, you can say it, but it doesn't really have its full Jewish legal meaning unless it's done in a minion, in a, in a quorum. And we know that there are teachings that our rabbis have. I'll quote one that says, you know, that someone is considered to be a, a bad person 
one of the one of the criteria for being considered a bad person is someone who lives in a community where there is a synagogue, where there is a a, a you know a congregation, and he deliberately doesn't pray with that congregation and just kind of prays at home or doesn't pray at all. So we have religious obligations to do this, and I think there's wisdom in it, and I think that it also fulfills this beyond religion the the need of of human beings to be in crowds together. Um. Again, just to hit again on another aspect of where, where I think people misconstrue and misunderstand crowds and conflate them, which is, which is a fancy word for basically mixing things up, mix them up with mobs. And, and a lot of people think, well, the crowds are always wrong. The, the, the masses are asses. They're, they're all dumb. And I think, you know, that is really not true. <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom in crowds. And of course, for those of you who have read the book by James Sirica, that is an actual name of a book, The Wisdom of Crowds, where he goes into a number of instances. Obviously, not every time the crowd is not always right. But there are a number of times where crowds are much wiser than individuals alone. And crowds can sometimes really be something that saves us from things. And in large public places, on a no- in a number of scenarios that are very familiar to us, crowds can be the difference between life and death. And when you really examine facts and don't rely on false accounts or rumors or prejudices, I think you'll see that. And I think one great example of that, and this is a story that will resonate especially with New Yorkers, but of course this became a national story. But I think one example of how we misconstrue and we're often willing to slur, for lack of a better word, or smear the idea of crowds is the story of Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese, for those of you who don't know this story, was a woman in 1964 in New York City who was murdered. And the New York Times initial report about her murder in a courtyard in a large apartment complex in, in the in a public area of a large a public apartment complex in 1964 the new york times famously reported that 30 or 40 people about 30 or 40 people saw the murder heard the murder and did nothing because like i said this was in like a you know right outside a large apartment complex and the image that a lot of people had when they read this story was a bunch of people with who were saw it turn their lights on. A lot of lights went on in a bunch of windows and, the, and everyone kind of knew what was going on, but nobody did anything. There's one problem with that story. It's not true. It's not true. For those of you who have grown up all your lives thinking that the kid of any, kid of Kitty Genovese story was not only a story that indicted New Yorkers as being cold and uncaring, but indicted the idea of humans not really wanting to help one another, um, let me say that I am delighted to be the one to disabuse you of this incorrect notion. The New York Times story has now been debunked many times over. And granted, it's a story from 1964, and you might not think it's important to remind people about it, but you know, you have no idea how much that story became a national story. It became such a national story that Kitty Genovese's younger brother, who was quite a bit younger than she was, joining the Marines in 1966, two years later, almost everyone in his unit knew exactly who he was. When he said, oh, I'm so-and-so Genovese from New York City, they said, oh, is your sister that woman who got killed? Or was that your, you know, were you really, I mean, he couldn't believe it how much it had become a story because people really grasped on that story, grasped onto that story uh, because I think there was a, a lot of people wanted to talk about how bad the city was and a lot of people wanted to 
believe that so-called crowds, that large numbers of people were not necessarily going to do the right thing. Well, again, the story is not true. The story is not true. Uh, at least four or five people called the police for one thing. There were people who ran out of their apartments to help her. In some cases, obviously it was too late. There was a very petite, small woman who literally risked her life to run out to try to save her and ended up coming there and getting there too late, but held her in her arms and tried to keep her alive until the ambulances came. And I'm not saying that the people involved uh, who, who were witnesses or knew about the murder are all a bunch of heroes and, and had have been slighted in that way. I'm just saying they certainly weren't an indifferent crowd and, and, and many of them did try to do something about it. There were logistical issues in the murder and you can read about it. And again, I will post the story on my Twitter feed at Jake, Jake NY, the story of the debunking of the, miscon- the misconstrued notions about the Kitty Genovese murder, just to let you know that crowd, I mean, this, this to me is one of the, the greatest smear campaigns against large crowds of people or, or a community of people or a gathering of people that ever, that ever occurred. Uh, and of course, we also, for the most part in Western law and Jewish law, we value the community at large, the, the congregation, the larger group of people. The crowd is actually a good thing in most of our representations as Jews and most of our thoughts as Jews. And I think as in most of the law in general, in whether it's American law, British law, or or even secular law. Now, of course, that has to be balanced out by an understanding that individual rights and individual safety have to be respected. The Talmud in Sanhedrin, of course, is one of those places where the rabbis discuss that, that horrible scenario that many of us learned in high school, or maybe we learned it in college or, or in a yeshiva, about the, the, the hypothetical scenario that a group of people come and say uh, to a group of Jews or a group of people and say, we're going to, you know, give us one of your people we're gonna, or we'll kill all of you. But, you know, if you just give us one of your guys or, or women, we'll kill them, and then we'll leave you alone. And the rabbis come to long, have a long discussion about what, what you're supposed to do in that situation. And then finally in the Shulchan Aruch, which is just the, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's the book that basically lists Jewish law with less discussion and more just kind of, it's almost like, just like a, 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 a reference book. Although it's a little bit more difficult than that. I've just sort of summarized it a little bit too much. But basically Jewish law comes down in the Shulchan Aruch on, on, with the understanding that no, you cannot hand over that one person to save even a community or even a large group of people. That once you start, because there's an understanding, I think, and I, this is not included in the Shulchan Aruch, but the understanding is that once you start giving people one person over for death, really, there's really no end to it. But also the understanding of, of individual life. Who's to say that this individual's life is less valuable than yours or any one individual in a larger area? So, of course, crowds are not so important in, I believe, an ethical society that they always override an individual's rights. And I think that that scenario that began in the Talmud and then becomes resolved later in Jewish teaching exemplifies that. But the point is, crowds are important. We need them as human beings. We need to be in crowds. And as soon as it's a little bit safer to do so, I believe the smartest thing to to do will be to allow us to be in crowded situations again within reason, with certain precautions taken, because we as humans and we as a society need this, whether it's going to a sports game, whether it's going to religious services, whether it's 
being together in maybe a, a Broadway show, something like that. There is a need for that in our constitution as human beings. And we've got to get back to that. It's been about a year and it's been too long and we can't have a world of individual people alone on their phones or alone in their bedrooms all day. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.